Welcome everyone to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I interview Professor Gregory Nagy, Francis Jones Professor of Classical Greek Literature and Comparative Literature at Harvard University, and Director of Harvard's Center for Hellenic Studies. Recently, I met up with Professor Nagy at the center's campus in Washington, D.C., He and I spent our time together discussing the study of classic literature, especially the study of Homer's epic poem, The Iliad. I hope you enjoy this podcast recorded at the Center's campus. This is part one of a two-part interview. Well, Professor Greg Nagy, thank you so much for hosting me today here at the Center for Hellenic Studies in Washington, D.C. Glad to be here. Yeah, great. Well, this is such an honor uh, and a treat for me to sit down and, and talk to uh, one of the great uh, Homeric uh, and Hellenic um, scholars in the world. And uh, I thought it would be really interesting for all the teachers in our audience and all the students of, of literature, especially uh, Greek literature, to learn a little bit about your background. How is it that um, you came to spend uh, the majority of your life uh, studying these great texts and, and being a student of literature, being a student of language and history? Well, it's... Uh Tough question, because I don't have any inspiring story. <laughs> uh, I stumbled into uh, studying ancient Greek. And when I say stumble, it's because in high school, I did pretty well in languages, not so well in mathematics and sciences, uh-huh. art sciences. And um, I was growing up in Bloomington, Indiana. Oh. And although I'd love to present myself as just a plain old corn-fed Midwesterner who's more friendly than people from other parts of the United States. Um, I have to confess that I was a faculty brat. Uh, My father was a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and um, I was not very musical, so I was ready for anything in public high school. Was he a professor of music? Yes, classical piano. Oh, very good. And I took Latin already as a freshman and then continued all the way through senior year. And I remember I started taking French in my junior year and went from there to senior, etc. And uh, I just love languages. And it was strictly Latin and French. Then... I wasn't thinking very hard about where to go to college. And in those days, I still remember the tuition for a resident of Indiana was $150 per semester. So I went to Indiana University. And one of the first courses I took there was French, where the professor spoke French. <laughs> and where the lectures were conducted that way and where we had to answer in French. And that was wonderful discipline. And we read, uh, I still remember, Racine. Uh, We read um, um, Manon Lescaut by Chevalier des Grieux, etc., etc., etc. And I also took a lot of Latin. Uh, Lucretius, I think, was the first course I took uh, in college. As for Greek, here's where it gets a little different. 
is I looked at the catalog and one of the courses that was being offered was intensive ancient Greek. I thought, intensive, how interesting. And I think it was the same year I, I saw there was a course on modern Greek. Wow, maybe I can do that too. Yeah. And so I was just hungry for languages. Yeah. And that's all it was. Yeah. And um, That intensive name would scare most students away. <laughs> well, I still remember going to the first class, and it was a pretty large classroom. And there were two cowering graduate students, as I found out, because we introduced each, each other. We introduced ourselves to each other. And uh, so they were first-year graduate students in English. Uh-huh. And... Um, very scared, and I, I still remember. Um, I thought, when is the janitor going to leave? He seems to be still around, and he has a styrofoam cup of hot chocolate, and maybe he's just taking his time with his hot chocolate. Then the janitor goes to the front of the class. It turned out to be the professor, <laughs> and he was uh, he was my favorite professor of all time. His name was Fred Householder, and he. Um, he looked at us, and he just wrote down the Greek alphabet on the blackboard. And then um, he, he wrote down the first paragraph of Xenophon's Anabasis and then said, when you get your textbook, get a grammar, and here are the grammar references. And you're going to see not just singular and plural, you're going to see something called dual. I said, well, that's just great. This is wonderful. This is a language that has not just singular and plural, but dual. And sure enough, I still remember, dareu kai parusatidos gignontai paides duo, presbyteros men artaxerxes, neoteros dekuros, epidede asthene ho kuros, kai keleue, kai ekeleue, and he ordered his two sons to be present. Wow, there it is. That's a duel. And, and so you have to be that way. If, if you're the kind of person who looks at a Swiss watch and wants to take it apart and try to put it back together, this yeah. is heaven. Yeah. And it went on like that. And I remember the second meeting. Um, by that time, we had our textbook, which was a student's uh, 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 guide to Xenophon's Anabasis, and we had Goodwin and Gulick, which was the grammar, and, and Mr. Householder had already told us what to look up where. Um, we started translating <laughs> for him, and uh, then I think the third meeting, he'd just come in with his styrofoam cup full of hot chocolate and say, any questions? And if there were no questions, he'd just dismiss us. So we learned very fast that we have to ask questions and engage him. Mm-hmm. So that's how I started Greek. Yeah. <laughs> now, you want to hear the modern Greek side? Yeah, sure. There were only three there, too. Yeah. <laughs> one of them was a Cypriot from Cyprus, and one of them was the wife, the then wife of the teaching fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wife was Finnish. And she thought she would like to relate to her husband, who was a native-born Greek. Yeah. So I guess there, there were, uh, I guess, yeah, that, that was it. Yeah. And, uh, 
And the teaching fellow was Kostas Kazazis, who eventually became one of the greatest professors mm -hmm. of linguistics. By that time, he had moved to University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that gave me a lesson how uh, a language not only survives, but is recognizable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we're dealing here with uh, Xenophon, who is uh, at the cusp of the 5th and 4th centuries. And, and you're dealing with modern Greek. Think of all the centuries that have gone by. And yet um, there's a system there. And there are things that are um, continuous and things that are not continuous. And it went on from there. And I had great professors at Indiana University. But in the meantime, because I liked my professor of first-year Greek, both ancient and modern, I got very attracted to what his number one passion was, which was descriptive linguistics. Mm -hmm. And so in college, I was a double major. Mm -hmm. uh, descriptive well, linguistics? Yeah, what does that mean? A, a, a double major or the... No, what is the descri <laughs> descriptive linguistics? I figured that you as a teacher would certainly know what a double major is. I know so the sorry. double major. I, I, never, I obviously <laughs> never studied descriptive linguistics. So, so descriptive linguistics is before Chomsky. That, that's the quick way of saying it. Oh, okay. And it's, uh, it's studying language as a culture, mm -hmm. as well as a structure. Mm -hmm. It's understanding that um, there is a grammar out there for any language, independent of any grammarian. Mm -hmm. is All that a grammarian does is try to describe the system, which is the grammar. Mm -hmm. And um, as a linguist, as a descriptive linguist, you might put together a very ele elegant description, or it might be not so elegant, mm -hmm. but uh, the grammar is independent of the grammarian. That was another wonderful lesson I learned. Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, I just loved all of this so much. It was such heaven to me. And uh, at a big state university, you could, you could do so many choices mm -hmm. that uh, I finished college in two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted more, so I started taking seminars mm -hmm. at Indiana University. But in the meantime, I had already been admitted to some graduate programs, mm -hmm. and my, my professor, my favorite professor, suggested that I go to Harvard. Mm -hmm. And I went to Harvard, and there they didn't really have descriptive linguistics. They had historical linguistics. Mm -hmm. And th that's part of my story, too, because... Yeah. Uh, well, that's what I have. So I not only studied um, ancient Greek and Latin, mm. but uh, also descriptive linguistics. Mm. And where... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, please. Not, not descriptive. And I also studied historical linguistics, right. switching yeah. from descriptive. Yeah. Sorry. So was it at Indiana or later on that you uh, got your first drink of Homer? Well, okay, here's a story for you. You understand this is all unrehearsed, and, and I might be very embarrassed hearing what I'm telling you later on, but, but I'm in a confessional mood, so let me just tell you this. Um, so at that point, uh, the Classics Department of Harvard, uh, for its Ph.D. program, mm -hmm. assigned a senior professor to be the advisor to all incoming uh, graduate students. And 
the person I got as my advisor was Eric Havelock, uh, the famous author of Preface to Plato, mm -hmm. which he was just finishing that year. This is 1962. And uh, so he said, well, well, young man, have you read lots of Homer? I said, I haven't read any. How about tragedy? I haven't done that either. How about Greek orators? I haven't done that either. Well, what have you done? Well, I've done marriage contracts and papyri from the, from the first to the second century straddling um, BCE and CE. Yeah. I've done the erotic novel Daphnis and Chloe, and I've even done Achilles Tatius's Lucipian and and Clytophon. And really, what I really want to do is 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 cross register at MIT and take lots of descriptive linguistics. And I like to meet Chomsky. And basically, I was told, "Oh no, you don't. You're going to take all sorts of Greek." I, I said, "Okay." Uh, of course, I still sneaked over to MIT at, on the number 68 bus that goes all the way down Massachusetts Avenue, which connects Harvard and MIT. And I did meet Chomsky, and I did study with Roman Jakobson, arguably the greatest structuralist linguist ever alive. But I had to take my uh, medicine and take courses in ancient Greek. I was assigned as my one-on-one -on -one mentor, John Finley, who is a legend, yeah. uh, a great teacher, a very compassionate uh, person, um, uh, um, passionately admired by his former students. And uh, I, I told Finley I'd never run, I'd never, let's do that again. I told Finley I had never read Homer. He said, let's start with Odyssey 24. Wow, Odyssey 24. So we did. Odyssey 24 is where, uh, um, essentially, there's a retrospective of the death and the funeral of Achilles. So it's like um, taking the very end of the story and then working your way back to the very beginning. Because now it's the ghost of Agamemnon, the ghost of Achilles, talking to each other in Hades mm. and, and having a retrospective about that fight they had way back when. Well, way back when is Iliad Scroll 1. Here I am in Odyssey Scroll 24. Mm. I thought this was the best thing since sliced bread. Mm. I loved it. And, uh, and then what else did we read? Well, um, Finley said, okay, we did, we've done well with this. Let's read Theognis. I never heard of Theognis. Mm. Uh, so Theognis is somebody that Nietzsche, the great uh, German philosopher, described as the most articulate spokesperson for Greek nobility, and he meant moral nobility, not socioeconomic mm. nobility. So we read Theognis of Megara. Mm. So it still wasn't, shall we say, the perfect or the um, the 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 best descri uh, prescribed way of getting into ancient Greek, but that's how I got into it. Mm. Um, and now let me fast forward because otherwise we'll never get beyond the Orphic <laughs> egg, and the Orphic egg hatches. But then what happens? So let's fast forward. Uh, in the meantime, I was doing lots of historical linguistics, mm. and in the end. 
I, I went through it all pretty fast. I went through the PhD program in four years. And I handed in a dissertation on what is called Zephyr's Law, which is a linguistic phenomenon mm. about what happens to what we transcribe as Y and W after light versus heavy con- after light versus heavy syllables. And why did I do that? Because I was interested in whether the dialect of Sappho was, uh, shall we say, uh, heavily influenced by the contiguous dialects of the Ionians, or whether it just it, it just had its own natural growth to become what it was in the language of Sappho. Mm-hmm. And I did answer that question to myself, but if you try to read my dissertation, which came out, I think, in 1970... No, in 1960-something... I can't remember now the date, maybe 1970. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think only three or four people in the world have ever read it because it's it's that complicated and it's it's an exercise in Indo-European linguistics, which is a sub-branch of historical linguistics and uh, and required a, a good knowledge of Greek poetry. And then serendipitously, I got hired as a junior faculty the same year I got the PhD, and that was just luck, 1966. At Harvard? At Harvard, yeah. which was nice, mm-hmm. and I've been there ever since. Mm-hmm. So I started teaching at Harvard in 1966, and except for a hiatus from 73 to 75, I've been teaching there ever since. I'm still teaching there. I'm not yet retired. Mm-hmm. I, I should be, but I, I, I love the I love the um, the things that I teach so much that I haven't yet got around to retiring. But uh, still look forward to the classroom and working with the students and love seeing it. them. Develop. I just love it. Yeah. Do you teach only graduate students, or you teach undergraduates as well? I, I do all of the above. Right. Uh, I um, this, let's let's do a parenthesis of what kind of things I I teach. There is one course in what is called general education, where my enrollment oscillates from as low as 19 to as high as 665, just one short of the demonic number. Uh, so so th- th- that's a course, of obviously, in translation. Yeah. It's what I describe as a great books course, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, the students have to read, in translation, of course, the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, three tragedies by Aeschylus, two, uh, two tragedies by Sophocles, two tragedies by Euripides, mm-hmm. two dialogues of Plato. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Very good. That's great books, isn't it? Yeah, sure. And and, and so that's my general education course. Mm-hmm. But I also which, teach... Which, which dialogues by Plato? Uh, okay, uh, the Apology mm-hmm. and the Phaedo. Mm, nice. Uh, I think they're a perfect pair. Yeah. And... Uh, and I could talk endlessly about how I try to approach uh, those classics uh, w- with students who've never been exposed to uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. let alone Plato or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but I want to go back just a little bit to uh, Greg in 1966. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hired to teach the history of the Greek language and history of the Latin language because I was a linguist. Mm. And um, the only way then I eventually um, stayed 
in the classics department and have been staying ever since is I had to reinvent myself as somebody who knows literature. So how did I do it? I started, this will shock you, with metrics because the rhythm of Greek poetry is the best way to understand the building blocks of how Greek poetry is made. Mm. Now, maybe that's not obvious, but it became obvious to me in the course of my working on my dissertation. But to make a long story short, that doesn't qualify me, does it, as a professor of Greek literature. Mm. So I start with metrics. And then I realized, gee, if I'm studying especially the metrics of Homer, I should know a lot more about the wording of Homeric poetry. So that's called formulaic uh, structure, and the study of Homeric formula was actually pioneered in Harvard. Mm -hmm. So I went from meter to formula, and then the next word would be theme, which is the way people who study oral poetics talk about the, the, the smallest workable unit of meaning. So meter, formula, theme, well, that won't be enough. Then how about scenes, and how about the structure of the Iliad, and the structure of the Odyssey, and the narrative? And pretty soon I became a pretty good expert on, on Homeric poetry in general. But then I realized that's not enough. I have to understand how Homeric poetry relates to all other poetry, and that means understanding how poetry relates to prose. So you see where I'm going. I went from the bottom up. And it's unusual uh, for somebody to go this way. And I, I really became a, a sort of full-fledged professor of Greek literature where I would say, okay, that's what I am now in the 70s. This, uh, this is a very interesting story, and it strikes me that you're in a, a fairly unique position to answer this question. So we... We learn in several places, but I'm thinking in particular in, in Plato's Republic that uh, from Plato's Socrates that, sure. that Homer educated Greece yes, or he yes, educated yes. ancient Athens. And I want to know, uh, so how do you uh, understand that? What did it mean that Homer educated Greece? Uh, I'm so glad you asked it that way because um, when it comes to something like war, uh, does that saying really mean that if you read the Homeric Iliad and the Odyssey, you'll know battle tactics, that you'll know um, the difference between one kind of weapon and another, or, or what kind of maneuvers are involved in warfare? No, it means, here comes my answer, how to die. And in a society where um, a young man can expect a pretty high mortality rate considering that there's a war going on almost every summer in almost every Greek city-state. Um, it's something that's dead serious, all important, and uh, I see that more and more clearly um, with every passing year that that's what is meant when we, we hear ancient texts telling us that uh, Homer educates. Mm -hmm. uh, it's moral education, it's education in facing the big problems of life, mm -hmm. the challenges of life. So, so do you think that there's 
um, something formative for Socrates as he faces his own death. He and you know he he doesn't experience. I mean, he does go to the battlefield. He defends Athens. I, I think yeah. it's the only time he leaves the the city state. Right, is to, is to defend her. Yes, and even then, not very far. Just yeah. just enough kilometers to go to the battleground where yeah. the Athenian army is uh, mm. conducting a war um, um, uh, to advance its own policies. And does he really care about the policies? No. He's just a good citizen soldier, or mm-hmm. let's say it more technically, a hoplite. Mm-hmm. That is to say, a heavy-armed warrior. Mm-hmm. And I love the way um, Plato's Socrates says about Socrates, I stood my ground. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the language of somebody who is a hoplite and mm-hmm. somebody who's standing in a mm-hmm. phalanx and has his shield in his left hand and his spear in his right hand. And the shield in the left hand, in a sense, covers not only for him, but for the person who's standing to his left. And, and, and similarly, the person who's standing to his right is covering with his shield held in left hand. So mm-hmm. there's this element of uh, being ready to give up your life for your fellow citizen. Mm-hmm. And that's what he says when he says, I stood my ground. And for him, the unexamined life that is not worth living is a life that doesn't face death, that doesn't face the problems, all of them, of life. So I love the way, especially uh, Socrates will say in, in the Apology, for example, well, two scenarios. Maybe after I die, there's nothing. It's like a good sleep. And then I won't even know that it's such a good sleep, but at least it's a good sleep. It's a good night's sleep, but it lasts forever. So that's one scenario. Or there is something in the afterlife, and then he goes through that. And I've worked a lot on what I think is an overly reductionist way of imagining the afterlife in ancient Greek texts. But we get to that maybe later. Uh, I, I love the way he says... One of the pleasures I will have if there is an afterlife is to interview the heroes. And, and I think my favorite is his interview with Achilles. Because basically he relives the Iliad, but in a way that only Plato can stage. Hmm. Your, um, your colleague at Harvard, the great uh, scholar of poetry, Helen Wendler, Yes. Uh, talks about the arts in general, poetry in particular, but the arts in general is situating us in the world. And it seems to me what you just described is a is a at least one way or one aspect of yes. how Homer educated Greece and how perhaps yes. Homer can continue to educate us. It's, it's, is that fair? It's beautiful, and and uh, I'm glad you mentioned Helen Bendler because she's one of my favorite professors of all time, and we're good friends. Hmm. And um, we study different things, but um, it all boils down to how traditional language, and traditional is good not because it's old, but because it has a continuity that reaches so far back into human experience. Traditional uh, forms of poetry um, tell you everything or almost everything about life. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Uh, maybe we could turn to the Iliad and, and ask a few questions um, in the, the remainder of our time here. Um, 
increasingly, uh, let me before we get to the Iliad, let me sure. ask you this question: that increasingly, I noticed that schools um, don't read Homer. If they do read Homer, they read the Odyssey. Yes. The Iliad has kind of fallen yes. off as a, yes. as a as a great book included mm-hmm. in you know literature English mm-hmm. classes. And um, has the Odyssey always been more popular? And if so, <laughs> why is that? I, I would say that the Odyssey couldn't exist without the Iliad. Yeah, so, in right. terms of of oral tradition, and I mean oral tradition in the broadest sense, I mean uh, the living of the living word the life of the living word as passed on generation after generation. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by uh, oral tradition. It's mm-hmm. performative. Um, if you look at it that way, um, the, the Odyssey, as we have it, couldn't exist without the Iliad. Couldn't have come about without the Iliad. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't want to say popularity. Can I use that maybe overlay? pretentious word, reception. But reception is not bad. And I, I mean by reception is how, how people react to mm-hmm. and pass on uh, whatever uh, what whatever is passed on to them. So, okay, if I say reception. Sure. So in terms of reception, uh, I find it so interesting. It was old Finley who said this first. Uh, I think he really was the first, is... He said, isn't it interesting that the Odysseus figure in Greek literature has a bad press everywhere except in the Odyssey? Everywhere. Huh. And, and I'll, I'll just cut this very short. Basically, I think I can prove to you that um, the, the Odyssey, with the background of the Iliad, can, can show the heroic aspects of Odysseus that can qualify for what you and I call epic. Mm. I'm not defining epic, I'm just saying that's the word we use. Mm. So, so then why is the Odyssey more uh, acceptable, more, um, more palatable uh, to the young, or, or we think that it's more palatable to the young? Well, uh, I, I like to put it this way. Um, if you look at that great Russian theorist uh, uh, Bakhtin uh, he, he talks a lot about the novel but not the way another theorist talks about it and I'm going to focus on the other one less well known uh, Lukács the Hungarian mm. um, and Lukács has, uh, has theories about novel as well now let me put the two together and talk about general literary theories about epic and novel. And uh, I think almost everybody who really goes deep into this question of epic and novel, when you scratch the surface, you realize that um, they all imagine epic as the Iliad, and they forget about the Odyssey. And let me go back to Bakhtin. Uh, Bakhtin's... um, it's B-A-K-H-T-I-N. Bakhtin's uh, scenario for the differences between epic and novel are such that all the characteristics that he says belong to epic really belong only to our Homeric Iliad. And he never thought of it, but all the characteristics that he associates with novel belong to the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So in fact, 
it's not that once upon a time there was only epic. There was always epic and novel. Mm. But Iliad is epic and Odyssey is novel. Mm. Novel pretending to be epic. Can I, mm-hmm. can I say it that way? Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, in, you and I as teachers will assume that people will like novel better. Well, mm. yes, true. Mm. Um, but, but where I get cross with people is if they start being consumerist and say, well, on a scale of zero to ten, mm. I rate the Iliad uh, at seven. Mm. No, I rate the Iliad as six. And I rate the Odyssey as nine. Mm. That's pretty optimistic. Mm. And I say, wait a minute. Uh, what if the Iliad and the Odyssey are rating you? Uh, because you have to have certain kind of understanding to be able to get it. And if you only get it up to a point, then maybe you're the one who gets the six or the seven. By, by rating me as the, as the reader, do you mean uh, pulling me into that world as opposed to yes, my and, pulling and it into mine? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And how, how much do I understand of the world that I'm being pulled into? Mm-hmm. And how much do I get? Mm-hmm. And so I like to challenge um, young people playfully by yeah. saying, uh, it, it's going to be harder to get it with the Iliad, but it's just as important as trying to get it with the Odyssey. And, and as a work of art, we, we, uh, we want to encourage our students, I believe, to allow the, the work to, to work on us yes. and to do what, yes. what, uh, yes. what it can on us. So and it, in this case... Uh, that earlier comment of yours uh, strikes me as very important. If if Homer, uh, as an educator, as a teacher, is is teaching ancient Athens and, and teaching us today how to die, mm-hmm. that seems to be um, in stronger relief in the in the Iliad, oh, right? Yes. Right. Oh, just, yes. just because of the, the war, the oh, battle, yes. and the the whole side of the war is you know. Geographically yes. and yes. chronologically far away from home, so yes. it just sets up the yes. the staring down of death yes. uh, dramatically and, and powerfully. And and if, if people give it a chance and read it that way, it's it it becomes not just powerful; it's overpowering. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Classics. In part two of my interview with Greg Naj, we explore in detail Homer's Iliad. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about this episode's topic, please visit our website shop where you will find the Cana Academy Guide on how to teach Homer's Iliad. You can find the shop at www.canaacademy.org. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening to Classics. Classics.